You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.6, Leaving Home, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and member in good standing of the Side One Podcast Dealers Union. (laughs) And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and delighted by Judo's friends. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 414 patrons and subscribers. Yeah, we lost a few now that pins have been secured, but still, thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Space Duck. The podcast would not be possible without your support. We also got a pile of books in the mail this week, so a big thank you to Charlie and Ziphius, I hope I'm saying that right, for all the great research material. We received a very helpful note about last week's episode. You may remember we were musing about the image of wine in Japan in the 1980s. Well, a listener and patron under the handle Char Aznable. Hey, that sounds kind of familiar. Wrote to us with some primary source information. He writes, My parents are both Japanese from Osaka. Everything I write about comes from them and from people I've met here in Japan that lived through the bubble. My parents met in the 1980s on a Japanese tour for young people in Paris. At the time, the bubble economy meant that more Japanese people were able to travel for international vacations, including to France. As an omiyage, or souvenir, and as a sign of wealth, it was common to bring back bottles of wine, but especially bottles of brandy and cognac. Most Japanese people had no taste for it, but it was seen as a sign of wealth, so they would display it in their homes and businesses. You'll often find these old bottles of wine, and of brandy and cognac, in shops still. Japanese wine isn't particularly good, especially compared to European wine. Maybe the idea in the show to include a wine snob, corrupt politician, was inspired from people returning from their trips with fancy wine and cognac to impress people and or bribe them. Thank you, Char, for sharing that with us. We had completely forgotten to mention it. Uh, But even nowadays, expensive bottles of wine and liquor are frequently used for bribes. So given what we learn about Damar, it seems likely that bribes are the basis of a lot of his wine collection. This note also helps to explain one slightly odd thing about this episode that, although we didn't comment on it, did stand out to me, which is that when Damar goes home, uh, he looks around his foyer and he doesn't see his wine and he's distressed by this. He questions his butler and his butler says, oh, I put it in the cellar. Now, to me, I would assume that the wine would go in the cellar. That seems like the natural place, wine in the wine cellar. Uh, But Damar keeps his wine out on display in the front room of his house, much as this listener noted people do today to show off the fancy bottles of wine that they've received as gifts or brandy, or cognac. This week, we are covering Gundam Double Zeta Episodes 7, The Gaza Storm, or Gaza no Arashi, and 8, The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice, or 
After the recap and our talkback, Dr. Shar returns to the program to discuss the final episodes of Zeta Gundam and the psychological implications of what happens to Camille. But first, let's sneak inside the offices of Radio Free Shangri-La and find out what everyone's favorite radio hosts are up to. Okay, folks, settle down, settle down. We have a lot to get through today, and I know we all want to get home to our dependent younger siblings. Oh, speaking of which, how did Tina's test go? I can't believe you remembered about that. It went great. She got accepted to the Uptown School for Overprivileged Girls, and they even awarded her a scholarship that should cover about half the cost of her uniform. I still need to pick up a couple more part-time jobs to cover the rest, but she's on her way to a better life. Glad to hear it. All right, let's get this show on the road. I think everyone is here except, uh... I don't see Brian O'Brien anywhere, but I think we still have a quorum. So, I hereby call this meeting of the Radio Free Shangri-La Writers to order. First order of business, we have received an official complaint from the colonial government about the line in last episode where we called Mr. DeMar, quote, the most frightful bore. <sighs> Don't blame me. I didn't write that. Bethany was ad-libbing while we were live. You should be thanking me. The script last week was as dry as a bone buried deep in a, a very dry kind of soil. I'll show you buried in a very dry kind of soil, you- And we've received an unofficial complaint from the Side One Commission on Public Morals regarding the extreme violence in last week's episode of New Case Files. They're already blaming popular radio serials like ours for tempting impressionable teenagers to engage in licentious behavior like rude gestures, adult language, truancy, backtalk, staying up late, food waste, and poor self-esteem. Now they're pushing the mayor's office to pull our license. This is radio. You can't even see my rude gestures. However, however, I called in a few favors and they are willing to forget the whole thing in exchange for a private apology. We'll also have to pay a small fine, cash only and payable directly to Mr. DeMar, and make some kind of public service announcement about how people shouldn't defame the rich. We're supposed to give up valuable ad time for a public service announcement? We're barely breaking even as it is. Now I'll never be able to afford a Santina to school. And I'll need to go back to salvaging scrap metal. Oh, how dreadful. Don't worry, don't worry. We just have to sell an ad that sounds like a public service announcement. That's impossible. It's not impossible. We used to pull this trick all the time back when I worked at the tiny little radio station where I worked before you all found my mobile broadcasting studio drifting through space. Well, let's go through the list of sponsors for next week and brainstorm some ideas. Here, everybody, take a copy. Uh... Uh, well, Sector 12 Authentic Smokehouse Barbecue Belay wants us to write in a bit for As the Colony Spins, where Bethany orders some of their delectable spit-roasted pork for her masquerade. Uh, they specifically requested we include the line, Only the very best will do for the very best to do. Oh my god. Uh, what about this one for the hoverbike rental place? You know, the... 
experience the future of transportation today with hover bikes for work or play those people um we could do a little skit well where some kids make fun of their rich classmate uh but then he goes home and his parents have bought him a hover bike and then the poor kids see him riding it and they feel really bad because they don't have hover bikes I don't think that's going to satisfy either the hoverbike people or Mr. Dharma. I wish I had a hoverbike. There's got to be something in here that will work better. Um, tender loving oranges, little rascal troublemaker. Oh, here we go. McDaniels wants a holiday-themed ad. We'll do a scene set on Christmas Day, uh, and we'll have Santa going around giving out authentic McDaniels uh, Big Dan burgers to everyone he encounters. Uh, Then he comes across a pair of teenagers who are making fun of the rich. So then Santa says, ho, 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 perhaps you didn't realise that I, Santa Claus, am rich. And then he doesn't give them any burgers. Hmm? And then, well, I... I suppose they starve in the cold. That seems like a really gruesome ending for a Christmas story. I don't think people really associate hamburgers with Christmas stories, do they? (sighs) Fine. Someone else pick something then. How about... Hello there, impressionable youths and male consumers between the ages of 18 and 32. I'm your pal, Tom T. from Radio Free Shangri-La, and this is Tom's Tips for Teens. Heads up! I am at this very moment being real with you. You can't see me, but I want you to know that if you could, you'd see that I'm sitting backward in a comfortable Chairco Vernier brand hovering office chair. In space, the legs are just for show, so stop using yours and sit down in a Cherco brand chair today. I have a very important message for you today, and it's not about how to unlock the secrets of comfort with Cherco. Today, I want to tell you about a rule that I've always followed throughout my long career in broadcasting. I couldn't have survived this long without it, and I think it could really change your life, too. It's called Never Punch Up. And now our recap for The Gaza Storm and The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice. The Endra has parked itself in the middle of a Shangri-La suburb, crushing houses and terrifying the populace so that they can block access to the port. The Argama will have to fly right by them if it wants to leave the colony. But Mashima is impatient, no longer concerned about damage to the colony, he wants to go on the offensive. One of his men, Pampa, comes forward in the briefing room. Kneeling down, tears streaming from his eyes as he declares, they cannot leave without avenging their fallen comrades. The whole crew beg for a chance to fight Ayug and Mashima, moved by their devotion, grants his permission. The crew decide to send three mobile suits, the Gaza Storm team, and the bridge crew salute as the team sets out. 
Deep in the junkyard is a hatch that would give the Argama another route out of Shangri-La, but it is controlled by the junk dealer's union. Judo and a few of his friends go to see if they can convince the union to let them through, only to run into Gemon. Still smarting from his defeat a few days ago, Gemon comes after them, forcing them all to run. But the littler kids can't keep up and Kum falls. Judo turns around to protect her and punches Gemon repeatedly in the stomach, but the much larger Gemon laughs at these ineffectual hits. He grabs Judo by the arm and twists, and when Ino moves to grab a pipe, Gemon pulls Judo close and threatens to break his neck. In the midst of resupply, Yagama has to scramble to prepare when they spot the incoming Gaza D mobile suits. With Judo away, Wright orders Fa to the Zeta and a completely caught off guard Torres to the Methus. When they launch, Fa tries to calm Torres down, but he is entirely unprepared and is grabbed immediately. Fa fights another Gaza D, but her timing is off and she is knocked back. The third of the Gaza Storm team, Pampa, announces to the populace that they are fighting in this way, one-on-one, -on -one, to avoid damage to the colony. He declares Ayug to be cowards who snuck into Shangri-La without a thought for the danger they posed to the people who live there. Furious, Bright orders the Argama to launch and support the mobile suits. Bicha and Mondo are ordered to one of the ship's gun turrets, with a glib, you'll figure it out, from Astanaji. When they fire and nearly hit Pampa's mobile suit, his high ideals go out the window. How dare they sucker punch him like that? He'll destroy the Argama even if it means taking down Shangri-La with it. Back in the junkyard, a young woman emerges from behind Gemon and Judo. She is wearing a blue normal suit and has long, lavender-colored hair, and after sneaking up, she brings a heavy pipe down on Gemon's head, knocking him unconscious. She is Rue Luca of the La Vienne Rose, and she asks them for directions to the Argama, but they are in too much of a hurry to really hear her. Still, she takes off in her core fighter, following them until she spots the mobile suit battle. The Zeta is pinned to the ground and being pummeled. Fa finally manages to throw off her opponent. The Methus is being squeezed so hard that the torso pops off the legs, and Rue radios Torres that she will cover his retreat. With the Methus gone, two of the Gaza Storm team advance on the Zeta until Judo, driving up, drifts the truck into their legs, knocking them off the ledge. He and Fa switch places, but before he can attack, he realizes that the fighting has blasted holes in the colony. Air is escaping, and he fumbles at his controls, looking for the emergency sealant. The Gaza Storm team deploy their signature move, shrouding the area in impenetrable clouds of smoke. No longer caring about the colony, they fire indiscriminately, hoping to catch the Zeta, the Argama, or Rue's core fighter. Realizing that there is only one way to get rid of the smoke, Rue shouts an apology to the colony before firing two missiles at the ground, tearing it open. The smoke is sucked out into space, and Judo, able to spot his foes, makes short work of the Gaza Storm team. He and Rue patch the hole in the colony before returning to the Argama, where Bright orders them to get the hatch open as soon as possible. There's no telling when Axis will attack next. It would seem they will have a little time. The Axis troops hold a funeral for the Gaza Storm team, tearfully mourning their comrades. Mashima, unused to Earth Sphere customs, is irritated that they aren't working, and interrupts the funeral to remind them that the best gift for the dead is vengeance. And to order them to stop what they're doing, 
and prepare the Indra for launch. Judo and friends are making their own preparations when El arrives with bad news. The junk dealers have captured Chimata and are putting him on trial in the courtyard near the hatch. Rue leaves immediately to rescue him, with Judo close behind. Standing on top of a building at the edge of the courtyard, Gemon riles up the crowd. Chimata was the one who told them to let outside ships in, and look at all the damage that's caused. When has an outside ship ever done them any good? The other junk dealers yell their agreement while Chimata waits, tied to a nearby truck. With him, a flare that is meant to signal the Argama, letting them know when the hatch is open and ready for their escape. But who should turn up working for Gemon but Yazan, who snatches the flare away? On the hunt for the Argama, the Endra arrives in the courtyard. They spot the Zeta hidden in one of the mountains of junk and shoot at it, sending the crowd in the plaza running in every direction while debris rains down on them. Rue and Judo, who had found each other among the crowd, split up, Rue to retrieve her core fighter and Judo to free Chimata. Just as Judo is finishing untying Chimata, Yazan arrives, and only cover fire from Rue allows them to escape. Chimata joins Rue in the core fighter while Judo tries to retrieve the flare, but Gemon is back in the Geze and even has a second Geze for Yazan. They crush the flare underfoot, setting it off and signaling the Argama ahead of time. The situation is desperate. The Argama will be trapped if they can't get the hatch open quickly, and they need to warn the ship about what's happened. Ru and Chimata go to deal with the hatch, and Judo tries to dig out the Zeta, still buried by the Endra's attack. It doesn't take long for the Argama to arrive. Yazan and Gemon attack immediately, throwing great hunks of metal like javelins at the ship. When Gemon attacks the Argama's bridge, Judo kicks him off before firing the Zeta's beam rifle destroying the original Geze and killing Gemon. Then Yazan attacks, and Judo is able to prize him off of the ship but winds up falling through the air with him. Yazan grabs hold of the Zeta, trying to tear it apart while he airs his grievances against it. Do you know how many times I almost died because of you? That wasn't me, Judo shouts over and over, but Yazan isn't thinking of the pilot. The Argama receives word via radio, Rue and Chimata have succeeded. The Argama can now back through the open hatch and out into space. Yazan tries to ram the Zeta into the departing ship, but Judo finds the button to transform the mobile suit, slipping out of the Geza's grasp. He fires on the Geza and, seriously damaged, it begins to plummet. All this time, the Endra has been waiting for the perfect moment to fire on the Argama. When it partway into the hatch, with no room to maneuver and little risk that the attack will harm the colony. That moment has finally arrived, but just when they are about to fire, Yazan leaps from the Geze, using his cape as a parachute, and the mobile suit crashes down on top of the Endra's main guns. Before Mashima can launch in a mobile suit of his own, the Argama fires its mega-particle beam cannon and destroys the catapult deck of the Endra. With so much damage sustained, the Endra is forced to withdraw. Meanwhile, Judo is struggling to transform back, zipping erratically through the air as he hits the controls. When he does get it back to its normal form, it's with barely enough time to slip through the hatch as it closes. But back on the ship, Judo plays it cool. He shares high fives with his friends, ignores Bright's proffered handshake, and when Fa says, nice job, he responds, oh, it was nothing. That nonchalance disappears, and he rushes to a window when his friends announce, that the Argama is entering space. 
I'm starting to realize that in this series, not that this has never happened before, but uh, Judo is not the most interesting character. <laughs> <laughs> More often than not, it's going to be people around him that are actually fun to talk about. Are you thinking about the recently introduced Rue? Oh, I wasn't even thinking of Rue because at least based off of what we've seen so far, Rue just has cool girl syndrome. She like <laughs> Cool action girl. Yeah, she's beautiful, she's young, she takes out Gemon, she shows up in her core fighter and takes charge of everything. Uh, none of that is interesting to me. <laughs> she seems to exist to go to Judo about the fact that he's not half as good as he thinks he is and for him to be in love with her. Okay, yes, but she is very <laughs> cool. Do not deny her coolness. No, I have written in my notes, cool girl. <laughs> Which is, you know, what it is, but it's not interesting. You can't tell me that's interesting. Judo is interested. <laughs> if it's not interesting, why is he so interested? Riddle me that, Nina. All right, there is one interesting thing to say about Rue. And this comes up in both of the episodes. Uh, like Chimata, Rue is a Argama fangirl. I think you get that in her reaction when she like meets Bright and gets the handshake. When she sees the Zeta being beaten up and she's like, no, why is the first time I'm seeing the Zeta while it's losing a fight? She like smacks her cheeks when she says that. So now that we've introduced another important character who is initially defined by their like pre-existing impression of the Argama and their, their pre-existing fandom... Maybe we start to get the idea that this series is kind of going to be about that. But unlike Chimata, she is already on side, so to speak. She works at or for La Vienne Rose. Yeah, she is already a member of Ayug. Though by the end of this, Chimata might as well be. Oh my god, Chimata. Do you think it's going to be awkward for him at work when he has to... <laughs> when he runs into his coworkers who he held at gunpoint? Their characterization of him is so all over the place. <laughs> he seems sort of nice but ineffectual. He gets captured by all of the junk dealers. Uh, he does not manage to escape by himself. Judo has to help him. But then there he is holding a bunch of guys at gunpoint, pulling off that very slick, kicking his jacket off the floor <laughs> move to sling it over his shoulder. It also feels like they were trying to tell us something about Chimata when they have him be a vegetarian. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, he's like the younger generation. He's the... Um... It gives a person a gentle impression, I think. And then he pulls an action hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you the one thing I found interesting about Rue. At one point when the young people are not sort of moving swiftly to do a thing that she thinks is obvious, she says... You colonists aren't good for much, are you? Where is she from? So where is she from? And wow, that's real icky. Appropriate, though, in that episode where we get the junk dealers and we get Gamon playing on their xenophobic... Nationalism is maybe not the right word because it's not like Shangri-La is a nation, but... But they're, they're isolationist, I guess. Yeah. In a way... We get a few of these cultural moments. I love the fact that Mashima doesn't understand Earth Sphere funerals <laughs> and thinks they're kind of dumb. Where is Mashima from? Well, he grew up on Axis. He might even have been born there, though it's more likely he was born on side three and moved to Axis when he was very small. 
The second of these two episodes, The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice, goes uh, to great lengths to show these differing cultures, the way they clash and the things that they have in common. I think it's really interesting in that respect. Well, and again, highlights a potential class issue, which is that the rank and file Axis soldiers are from the Earth sphere, but their commander is from Axis. See, I don't know that they are from the Earth sphere. I think they're sort of pretending at it. And I know where you're coming from because they're doing the funeral and Gotten is like, don't you know, this is how people honor the dead in the Earth sphere. The Axis soldiers just seem so intent on what they're doing, so moved by it. It doesn't feel like play acting. That's all true. I just, I can't quite wrap my head around how they would have a bunch of people from the Earth sphere who are that young when they've only just returned. And, you know, it seems like these guys have been with the, the Endra for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. It doesn't totally make sense. Could they be recruits from the colonies? It's possible. Yeah, I don't know. I, I agree that the timeline doesn't make sense, but the way the scene is written, that was the vibe mm. that I got. The clash between Mashima and his subordinates that shows up in the funeral scene is most interestingly expressed in the notion of this like giant space cross that oh my Haman is proposing to build as a collective tribute to all of the dead Xeon uh, soldiers and how Mashima thinks that's great. And he can't understand why his soldiers are not satisfied thinking about how the spirits of all of their deceased comrades will be commingled inside this <laughs> giant single <laughs> national <laughs> monument. Um, yes, Kuni. Sorry, Nina, what was that? <laughs> uh, Tom. Do you, think, do you think this could be a reference to something? Tom is referencing the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo. Uh, highly contentious because a lot of war dead are enshrined there, including some war criminals. To be fair, I think the show is referencing it. I'm merely pointing out the reference. One of the things about the Yasukuni Shrine that is so controversial is it is a collective memorial for Japan's dead soldiers, those who you know died in service of the imperial nation. And the spirits are all co-mingled. They're all squished together into one spiritual mass. And your loved one's individual ghost, your, your loved one's individual spirit, no longer exists as an independent thing. It's merely part of this national spirit. Yeah, I mean, Gotten points out to Mashima, don't you think that's kind of cold? <laughs> and then by the end, Mashima is participating in the funeral, though it's not clear if he fully gets it yet or if he just understands that it's necessary for morale. Everybody at the end is crying and calling his name. He has kind of a moment where he's incredibly moved by this. And he says, wow, to imagine that a funeral could affect morale so much. Yeah, I don't think he really gets it. I think he has just realized that it does make a difference to them to be able to mourn their comrades. I think Mashima is constitutionally incapable of getting it. Whatever it is, <laughs> what, he doesn't. Whatever it might be. Uh, hence his inclusion of the pig bone. <laughs> As a memorial to the fallen citizens of the colony. Yeah, I... What? <laughs> Which is doubly or maybe even triply funny when you remember that the mobile suit that crashed on the Endra is the one that Yazan was piloting, who is not a citizen of the colony. Uh, Mashima just getting it, just getting it so wrong in every way. And yet his men love him. Yeah. You can't deny that the man has got charisma. <laughs> 
He is a lovable oaf, an oaf, but lovable. There was so much good animation in、uh, the latter of these two episodes. In the funeral bell tolls twice. So many great little moments. Because we were just talking about Mashima, I remembered one from the end where he's about to go get the hamahama and gets his hand crushed in the door. <laughs> well, and before that, he's like standing on the chair, pumping his fist in the air. There's a moment when one of the bridge crew is sort of leaning over Bright <laughs> while something important is happening, and Bright gives him such side eye. The animation that Judo does when the two mobile suits are trying to squish him, and he's like leaping around between them and hiding in the crevices of their feet—all、uh, really great, fluid, kinetic animation that conveys a ton about the scene. There's a lot of slapstick in this eighth episode. And it really lands for the most part because the animation sells it so well. I laugh every time Gemon goes full speed into the wall of that, <laughs> into the wall around that tunnel. Yep.、Uh, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it, even though I know it's coming, I still, I still crack up every time. All of this should be no surprise because the animation director for episode eight for the funeral bell tolls twice was Kamimura Sachiko. Who is a prominent, hugely skilled animator who is most famous as the character designer and animation director on City Hunter, which was in '87, so a year after Double Zeta, and then Venus Wars in '89.、Uh, she's been a frequent collaborator with Yas on his projects, and today she lectures about animation at various schools. She's also a representative on some government cultural committees where she represents the interests of Japan's female animators. And there's so many more little details. I mean, I'm sure we couldn't even count them all. But at the very beginning of Gaza Storm,、uh, when the Endra has decided to park itself <laughs> in the middle of a suburb and crush some houses,、uh, there's this young couple wearing matching outfits. I think he's carrying a rugby ball or a frisbee. They flash some text on the screen when the Gaza Ds are introduced. Yeah,、uh, that was a weird. Totally、touch. new. Different thing that they were trying out, I guess. The stuff with the live chickens and pigs was funny, even though I can't help but wonder what on earth—not earth—what what in Shangri-La are they going to do with live chickens and pigs? I mean, at some point they are going to make them not alive, and then they are going to eat them, or from the chickens' eggs. Uh. They have Pampa leaping over his desk to kneel in front of Mashima, tears streaming down his face. He, I mean, he's doing a very like a very formal, respectful bow here. He's supplicating himself and begging Mashima for permission to go out. Right. It's it's both very silly and sort of sad and moving at the same time. This episode、uh, is noteworthy because it was storyboarded by Tomino himself. When Yino is thinking, "Hey, can I grab that pipe and save Judo?" the expressions on his face are very subtle. It's the tiniest little like facial movement that tells us, "Ah, he has a plan. He's thinking of something." <laughs> I love that kind of thing. There was one place where the animation felt strange to me. Okay. Though maybe it's in in keeping with the way Double Zeta is. One of the things that Gaza Storm, as an episode, makes clear is that Judo has killed people. 
it's sort of vague in the earlier episodes. It's yeah. we're not a hundred percent certain that he's killed anyone until everyone's like, we have to get vengeance on the Zeta for killing our friends. All right, I thought that was I thought that was odd because the only episode that Judo could plausibly have killed somebody in is the immediately prior one where he faces Mashima and two Gazas. And he does take out the Gazas, but it doesn't seem like he killed them. I'm wondering if they're thinking about getting revenge for losses before they even came to Shangri-La. Like in the fighting when Camille was piloting the Zeta back at the end of Zeta Gundam. That's entirely possible because that's certainly Yazan's position that he's thinking of the Zeta. (laughs) Which gives us one of the funniest moments of the show so far when Yazan is like, you took everything from me. And Judo's like, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Right. But one of the things that happens when you pilot the Zeta is it sort of doesn't matter who you are. And we've even seen this with Fa. People have occasionally fought Fa and the Zeta and been sort of surprised. Like, huh, I would have thought the Zeta pilot would be better. But it never occurs to them that different people might be piloting the Zeta. The Zeta has such strong presence and identity of its own that the pilot sort of becomes irrelevant to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to that previous episode, the deaths in this episode are not as graphic as they would have been in First Gundam or in Zeta. They're not as clear. Judo seems entirely unaffected by them, which... Uh, both of our previous pilots were pretty affected by their first few kills. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were quite emotional moments. Judo seems very disconnected <laughs> from them or almost like it doesn't it doesn't matter or it doesn't register. You know, it's a little strange the way the episode handles those deaths by having every single one of the Gaza storm uh, mobile suits <laughs> get sucked out into space. Just sort of spin and recede while they yell for Mashima. Right. It allows the deaths to be a little lighter, uh, a little more sterile, because they are, they're not dying where we can see them. Their mobile suits are not exploding. There's no blood. They're just shoop, getting sucked out, and then they disappear. And even Gimon, you know, his suit explodes, but we don't get the shot of him in it before that happens. It is, in fact, possible that he got out. I don't think so, but... <laughs> I suppose, maybe. We decided to do these two episodes together because together they cover the introduction of Rue and this whole story about trying to get the industrial hatch open and escaping the colony, as well as the battle between the Argama and the Endra directly. It's also kind of helpful for us because there just isn't that much to say about the Gaza storm, I don't think. It's not nearly as dense an episode as The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice is. However, there are some interesting thematic things that connect the two episodes besides all of that. One of them is the focus on uh, hunger, on eating, on this sort of very basic mundane necessities of life that seem so different from the you know, exciting, dramatic space opera. Against the backdrop of that, we also have probably my favorite through line of that episode, which is Bita and Mondo, (laughs) who go through this whole trajectory of, first, they're sort of disdainful. They thought it was going to be all fighting, all of this, you know, resupply stuff is boring and terrible. Gosh, that bright guy. To sort of wandering around aimlessly, Uh, and being shoved out of the way by Fa and Torres, 
And these first two scenes are showing us it hasn't quite been decided what to do with them yet. They don't yet have a role. They don't have assignments. Nobody's really teaching them what needs to happen right now. Then they get put in a gun turret and it's very, you'll figure it out. <laughs> don't destroy the colony. Until they then finally land some good shots and are celebrating and everybody on the ship is you know, celebrating with them. We get a shot of Bright on the bridge being like, oh, they did it. <laughs> this trajectory of sort of disconnection and not being part of the community and not having a role and then becoming part of things and beginning to contribute to what's happening. And we have in another moment that was very small, but that I quite enjoyed, you know, Bright realizes that these kids know the local situation much better than he possibly can. And so he consults with Bicha and Elle and they give him a, a very thoughtful explanation of the local political situation. Yeah, because they're not they're not dumb, despite what you might expect, given their circumstances. And they have a pretty sophisticated understanding of the local politics around the junk dealers union, the hatch, and everything going on in this sector of the colony. At the beginning of that arc that you were just talking about, Bicha and Mondo are complaining about how seeing all of the livestock getting loaded onto the Argama really ruins their like idea of it. <laughs> yep. And that goes back to what I was saying a moment ago about the basic mundane necessities of life and how it feels a little incompatible with the dramatized idea of the heroic Argama sailing through space doing mobile suit stuff. Somewhat ironically, this scene with the pigs and the chickens and whatnot is actually a frequent subject of complaint by people who don't like Gundam Double Zeta. Hmm. Because it does undermine the cool image of the Argama. They have to eat. <laughs> Well, I do think it's a little silly and obviously included for humorous effect to have live animals rather than just crates full of like frozen and processed food. I sort of like that it's highlighting. It's not all glamorous or tragic battle. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. I also really like the line. I think it's Beecha who says it. He blames a bright for this. Yes. It's like that old guy <laughs> is stuck in his ways, which is true. But probably Bright is actually unusually obsessive about making sure that the Argama has enough food. Because Bright basically starved for a year on the white base when they could never get enough supplies. And I imagine that those experiences left a lot of scars on Bright and have affected his command style ever since. The scenes of all these young people sort of learning and getting involved together also give us a moment that's clearly meant to tell us a little more about the sort of person Elle is because they have her and Fa in the same turret. And Elle is like, let's kick some butt. And <laughs> Fa is like, must protect Camille. <laughs> I should say that again because it's more like, I must protect Camille. It's very quiet and soft. And, and it's even less direct than that. It's like, well, keeping Camille safe is dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very much like <laughs> L is like the characters in Boondock Saints when they get access to the armory. Elle's like, we could kill everyone. And Fa's like, yes, if we killed everyone, then Camille would finally be safe. 
I'm waiting in this next episode to see if Fa goes back to Shangri-La because they have the kids hint. They have Shinta and Kum hint that mm-hmm. Fa wants to stay behind. She doesn't want to leave Camille there. But she's still on the Argama, so... It's a nice little scene showing Lena and Shinta and Kum talking about the other characters, talking about Fa and Judo and will they come, won't they come? What do they really want to do? What sorts of people are they? It's part of a recurring theme in both of these episodes of an audience within the show that is watching the events of the show. In Gaza Storm, when the Gaza team makes their attack, one of them lands, Pampa lands, to step out of his mobile suit and start making announcements over a loudspeaker, essentially doing running commentary for the people of Shangri-La. And the way they fight is all very conscious of this audience that is watching them and judging them based on whether or not they fight honorably. Then in The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice, you have Mashima, who is essentially acting for the sake of his crew, which is his audience. You have Gemon, who's up on stage, uh, delivering a quite persuasive speech to the members of the Junk Dealers Union. And even during the fight in The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice, we get a lot of scenes that look like Yazan is pulling off essentially professional wrestling moves. It's a very showy, (laughs) performative kind of fighting. There's a moment where he and Gamon are locked together. Uh, and then there's a moment where he's sort of manhandling the Zeta. <laughs> he's holding the Zeta by the arm and by the leg. And then he's got his foot in the middle of the Zeta's back. And he's like stretching it out like he's trying to break the back. And then because the Geze has extra arms, he's also like thumping the Zeta on the head. What that sense of audience within the show gave me in these episodes is... Uh, the very clear picture that Ayug does not understand and is not engaging in the uh, sort of war for hearts and minds aspect of what they're doing. They feel that they are in the right, and so they don't understand why they need to make their case to anyone. And so they don't. Bright is a reasonably savvy operator within the military, but he doesn't know anything about how to convince the locals that Ayug is fighting for them and is on their side. It doesn't even occur to him to try to do that. <laughs> yeah. And then when Axis makes a case for it pretty compellingly, he's like, those liars, but he doesn't have a counter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're not they're not lying, though. Well, the argument was not acting out of cowardice, but it's true that they parked themselves in this colony and like, yeah, by doing so, they endanger the colony. For the first time in double Zeta, and I can't remember if it ever came up in Zeta. I believe it did in in First Gundam. The show also very explicitly lays out and highlights the fact that uh, mobile suits are a power fantasy for children to enable them to engage on the same level with adults. Absolutely. Because we have Judo trying to fight Gemon hand-to-hand, but He's 15, and this large adult man can wipe the floor with him. Yeah, he's he's actually 14. <laughs> okay, 14. You know, he tries to kick Yazan in the groin, and he can't even do that effectively. Yeah. <laughs> and Gemon lays it out very explicitly. He says, without your mobile suit, you're just an ordinary child. And this idea is the core of a lot of anime, a lot of shows for children, period, really. They present a, a mechanism 
by which kids uh, mechanism <laughs> by which kids can compete directly hold their own against adults and that might be mecha that might be pokemon it might be magic there are a lot of different ways to achieve that end but the idea is to make kids feel powerful when in the real world they often feel quite powerless Doesn't Yazan feel like he's from a different show? <laughs> he does, yeah. I was charmed by the unexpected bit of continuity where he walks away with one of the escaped pigs at the end of Gaza Storm and is roasting it on a spit <laughs> at the beginning of the funeral bells told twice. So that continuity, plus Yazan's major role in the funeral bell tolls twice, finally shows us why they've been giving him cameo appearances in practically every episode since his last major appearance. It's because he was going to be important again, and they didn't want us to forget about him or think he was dead, which is good storytelling. There's nothing particularly amazing or fancy about it, but it is good, solid serial storytelling, and it's something that Zeta could have done with a lot more of. You gotta maintain the through line. And just like in some of those previous episodes, we see him drawn with much darker, heavier shadows. Uh, he just looks rougher uh, and a bit scarier <laughs> than the other characters. His life has been rough and difficult since he arrived in Shangri-La. I realized he's a ronin. He tells Judo, you left me broken and bitter. Once I was a titan, now I'm forced to live in misery, forced to bow and scrape and pretend to be a junker. He he lost his liege. The titans, or Sirocco. And now he is forced to travel the world and work in these ignominious jobs. <laughs> I mean, he's forced to fight for money. How disgraceful for someone like Yaza. He's forced to fight to be able to eat. Because Gemon says, you told me you would fight anybody I wanted you to if I gave you a place to stay and food. Absolutely. And he has that moment when the Endra shows up and Gemon is like, come on, let's go fight that that foreign ship. And Yazan's like, that's not the Argama. And they have a brief fight over this because Yazan says, sometimes a man has to hold to the things that he used to want in life. There was a time when he wanted nothing except to defeat the Argama. And now, even so reduced in circumstances, he still clings to that desire. And on the making him look funny side of the episode, he spends most of it with a joint of meat in his mouth. That's funny, but it's also sad. It just like hangs out there the whole time. He's been starving. He's not going to leave a good piece of meat even in battle. And he makes his escape. So we are left to wonder what will happen with him next because he he uses his cape as a parachute <laughs> before uh, letting the Geza crash into the Endra. Well, Judo says of Gemon that he's the kind of guy who wouldn't die even if you killed him. But Yazan is really the kind of guy who wouldn't die even if you killed him. And since I just mentioned Gemon, I also want to talk briefly about him and the junk dealers union which gets a brief appearance in The Funeral Bell Tolls Twice that does tell us a lot about them. It's a rather anti-union portrayal. Yes, which is interesting in its own right. The Junk Dealers Union that appears in this episode, though, is less of a union and more of like a trade guild. 
This is not an association of like junk workers like judo. This is an association of the sort of small scale business owners, the petite bourgeoisie who are really running the junk trade. They have enough power that they control the access to this industrial hatch and they decide whether to open it or not. And then of course they exploit that power for money. But it is, it's people like Gemon. It's people who are fairly wealthy, who run their own companies, and who probably exploit the younger, poorer junk workers like Judo and Company, and who are, we see, quite easily roused into a uh, sort of frothing xenophobic fury against those dirty outsiders. I like the characterization of Gemon in this episode. It makes him seem like still an oaf, still a bit of a buffoon, but there's more to him than that, right? He is somewhat charismatic. He does have a position of importance within this community. We should probably wrap up by talking about the protagonist of the show. I mean, not that much happens to Fa in these episodes. More humiliations. Mostly in the Gaza storm, and guess who wrote that one? Uh, that scene with Judo telling her to go make him some lunch and her just being like, oh, of course, is so infuriating. Fa doesn't even do that poorly in this episode, but the script nonetheless insists on just humiliating her at every turn. We do, however, get a nice contrast uh, between there's some new opening narration that is from Judo's voice, uh, very cocky. We see him behave very cocky throughout the episode when he first manages to uh, slip free of Yazan by transforming. He acts like he did it on purpose when he was definitely just whacking the controls. When he's trying to transform back, he's yelling, I am a new type. Zeta, obey me. Um, You know, he, he does his very, we now understand, put on nonchalant walk back into the Argama, gives out some high fives, ignores Bright's offer of a shaked hand. Fantastic bit of characterization there with, I think, great significance. However, he loses his sort of put on cool a bit when his friends are like, oh, look, we're entering space. He's like, what? <laughs> and runs at the window. <laughs> this is very exciting for him in a way that he can't pretend not to care about. Yeah. And even when he's behaving in a very cocky manner, he's still like getting knocked around. He whacks his head into the control panel on the Zeta. At one point when he's talking to Rue and she's like, do you think you can handle that? He's like, yeah, of course. But then he stands up quickly and knocks his head on some junk. Like, this is a show that consistently makes fun of its characters. Basically all of them all the time. Now, when it does that to people who are very like self-serious stick in the muds, like Bright or cocky jerks like Judo, it works. <laughs> it's funny. It's great. Because it's nice to see somebody so full of themselves get a little of the, the hot air taken out. It's less nice when it happens to Fa. Well, Fa is not arrogant at all. She just wants to be of use. She like just wants to help. That's the whole reason she became a pilot. They needed pilots. She wanted to be part of something and be helpful. Here we are. Fa is just so good and so nice. I mean, do we ever see her be mean? <laughs> no. And Fa doesn't get those scenes of like doing awesome in order to make up for the, the humiliations. 
She doesn't even get to do accidentally awesome like judo. So how many minutes of each talkback do you think you will devote in the future to defending Fa and complaining about her ill treatment? Just like half, half of every talkback? You know what? It's up to the show to decide that. This week, we are welcoming back to the program fan favorite, Dr. Shar. Welcome back, Dr. Shar. Hello again. It's nice to be here. For those of you who are just joining us, Dr. Shar is a clinical neuropsychologist and our neuropsychology consultant and a real doctor, like with a PhD and everything. <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Yes, I'm a real doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Shar has joined us in the past to talk about the squishy brain matter of our characters and the ways in which things like deep space and trauma can affect them. But also the squishy underbelly of everyone's hearts. <laughs> yes, the hard science and the soft feelings. Both of them together, doing a fusion dance. That's Char. <laughs> Woo! And today, although the podcast has moved past Zeta and we have more or less dispensed with Camille for the moment, uh, we've brought Char on now to talk about the end of Camille's story in Zeta Gundam. So, Dr. Char, you've watched the last three episodes of Zeta. This is from, what were they called? I don't know, but I've named them myself, if that helps. What did you call them? Hang on. Zeta Gundam 48, obviously never been a pessimist. Zeta 49, Mega Bazooka Laser. And Zeta 50, <laughs> Zeta 50, so now he's a vampire. I want to suck your soul. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay, well, let's start with episode 48. This is the one in which Camille finally kills Rosamia. Yeah, that happened. He tried so hard not to, and then, you know, just straight up had to. Yeah, that's what makes this episode so striking, is that for most of the show, while Camille has been willing and able to kill some people, when he encounters, uh, let's say, vulnerable female enemy pilots around his age, he goes to <laughs> extraordinary lengths to not kill them to try to save them, even to the point of refusing to fight them and seeming willing to let them kill him so that he doesn't have to hurt them. Yeah. And yet. And yet he did. And then like they cut to like, yeah, I kill people. That's pretty cool. I'm going to go now. And I was like, that was weird. I feel like the editing was out of place or he's just nuts. The impression we got from that scene was more uh, the second because... <laughs> In addition to the fact that he has been trying so hard not to kill people, he had a weird sort of sister-girlfriend relationship with this girl. <laughs> yeah. And in the end, he couldn't talk her around. The only thing that he could do to protect anyone and that he ultimately had to do to protect you know, his ship and his crewmates was to kill someone. And so I guess I just, I thought he was uh experiencing some kind of like mental break he tried so hard and it didn't work out and now he's just trying to be like well i guess killing is how i help people so i'd better get used to it and be cheery about it because this is all i have i mean i see him so rarely 
interact with Fa outside of the suits and um, when he's not in the suit with her, does he just have this different attitude with her or? They have a little bit of a, like she's very clearly in love with him. They've been friends since they were children. Of all the people in the show, she's known him the longest. He really tried to keep her from getting involved. He didn't want her to join the war as well. And that is another thing that he's failed at and another person he has been unable to protect from the ravages of war. So she is just like, she's just a manifestation of his guilt that loves him back. Uh... Oh no. <laughs> Your guilt is the only thing that can care about you. Therefore you should care about it. Well, so during this sequence, uh, he repeatedly sees this other girl for he looks at Rosamia and he like sees the ghost of four, um, who is another young, attractive enemy uh, pilot who he also tried and failed to save from the war. I was torn about how to interpret this because I'm not going to pretend I know the supernatural aspects of space. <laughs> I was like, you are either having like that kind of merging of relationship objects where they're all the same thing, you know, the, the female pilots that you tried to save and having like a break, a mental break of some sort, or, you know, the ghosts of space are trying to lead you in the right direction. We had that same debate when we watched the episode. <laughs> oh, goody. <laughs> and I suppose it could be that it's both. that The ghosts of space are a fantastical supernatural metaphor for his like, what did you call it? Like a blending of the different um, objects? Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. Um, when I say objects, I mean like in the sense of that we have these kind of archetypes or schemas of a type of person in our lives. And as you've said, that he has this kind of stable object of the similar women pilot in space that I must save. I'm like, it's just so easy to put that schema onto someone else. And it's just happened so often mm. that it's just easy to be like, you are the thing that I need to save and can't see that she's a crazy murder lady, murder baby. <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed to, well, four four sounded like she had a little bit more sense of what's going on. Um, Sometimes they were... <laughs> One of the other things about these women, one of these girls that they all have in common is that they're all undergoing really intense emotional manipulation of some kind. You know, in Sarah's case, it's this like abusive older man who is taking advantage of the fact that she like desperately wants approval to control and manipulate her. In the case of Four and Rosamia, it's more like MK Ultra, the military is brainwashing people kind of thing. <laughs> In order to make them into loyal, controllable super soldiers, basically. They brainwash them by erasing real memories or? And replacing them with other memories that they consider like suitable or helpful. It seems to be working out great for you in that it's not. Well, it's not a perfect system. <laughs> That's why they need so many test subjects. Oh, Lord. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the schema that Camille is uh, creating and then uh, overlaying onto these various women that he meets? Like, where does something like that come from? And why does Camille fall into doing that so often? Um, so schemas are just something we generally do. Like, 
all of us just to simplify the decisions we make in the world. You know, we all have a basic understanding of what comes next in our days. We assume that when we wake up in the morning, the sun will be out to a certain degree and we can count on those things, right? So we have a basic understanding of how a day will progress. And then as we go through life, we kind of create uh, more advanced schemas related to other people, you know, people will answer with fine to hi, how are you? And all those, all those rather robotic things until something changes up and we need to um, accommodate or assimilate that new information. And we do it with other people too. We know how we can mentally prepare to interact with someone. We know when we're going to work, there's going to be business transactions. We know when we're going to see friends, it's going to be a little bit different. And I think this is kind of where in relationships, people will be like, you have a type uh, mm. because there's a schema that you have um, that you're comfortable with and that you like. And then as long as things fall within the comfort zone of wiggle room for those types of schemas, and you're kind of content with that. And for people that are under a lot of stress, are less likely to use their frontal lobes because you know when you're actually stressed, you actually lose your higher order functions. It's easier to just rely on these schemas um, in order to figure out what to do in high stress situations. So like a teenager who has been traumatized and lived in space a bunch and is also <laughs> under intense pressure would be more likely to fall back on those kind of schemas. Yeah, and I think the same thing is happening with all these brainwashing uh, new types or cyber new types or I don't know the girls with abnormal color hair <laughs> those are called punk rockers <laughs> storm wannabes uh, is that you wipe out you're essentially wiping out the other schemas and putting in other things and I think it's really obvious when we have Rosamia just being like I know that big brother is safe I will go find him or destroy him. It, this, the message seems to change, but she knows that the idea is just like, follow big brother, that's what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they can keep that big brother schema, but like change it so that it doesn't apply to Camille, but it applies to this other guy, Gates Kappa. I mean, you know, a male that provides guidance. Mm. That's it, that's all that, that's all her seems to be. It's just like the one that provides guidance. So we do we know anything ever about Rosamia, like the true Rosamia? No. No. Even the couple of things she said that do seem to be more close to a, a true self, you know, how do we know? <laughs> we don't ever true. we don't ever see her in another scenario. We don't see her past. The one thing I think we do know about Rosamia's past is that something really tragic happened to her when the colony fell to Earth seven years ago, because she has these recurring traumatic memories of the sky falling. Mm. So there's an entire sequence with her and Fa and a clown. <laughs> <laughs> in the right. toy store. Because in the toy store, the yo-yo actually... Um, the entire sequence of that reminds me of a type of therapy that was definitely coming of age at the time that these were made. Oh, really? Do go on. Sure. Because um, I'm like, she she follows it with a break, right? And she gets really angry. So, you know, that stereotypical, like, follow the stopwatch. Like mesmerism kind of thing? Yeah, that, that mesmerism. So that actually, like, got picked up again recently not terribly recently, but it's been trying to be established called 
EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm -hmm. So that makes you follow a finger, follow something rhythmic like a yo-yo with your eyes. It kind of creates an interesting response with the autonomic nervous systems so that these memories that you're actively trying to shut down or repress can come up and you can process them. According to the theory, people can have stances on the theory and I have my own stance, but that's for another day. She's kind of following it. And then she has that moment where she's like, you're not my brother. And um, I think that's what happened. It's just like that she got too comfortable because Fa's trying to, both of them actually, it was like Camille and Fa are trying to be like, remember that time in the boat? It was nice. It was fine. You can freaking relax. And she's like, mm-hmm. no, I can't. And then she runs away. And I was like, oh, cool. Uh, repressed memories and um, whether or not they are valid or true was not proven until several years later. But the fact that we do repress things to a certain extent, but that would have been a thing that would have been interesting to a lot of people. Okay. So you would say the yo-yo is like, not exactly calming Rosamia, but allowing her memories to sort of surface and so she's forced to confront them and that's what causes the break. Yeah. In the moment she's making quick decisions in the moment she's, you know, looking for her brother. Um, and these are just easy directives, but then to like actually sit there and question them or like, why am I doing this? Is my brother in fact, my brother, is it this other guy? <laughs> Could it be neither of them? That's kind of too much. <laughs> Those are big questions. They are big questions, and it sucks if you don't want to answer them ever, or don't have an answer to them, or if the potential of answering them is life-threatening and makes you, you know, question everything you've ever done and who you've killed up to that point. So, of course, you'd want to run away. (laughs) Yeah, and her response to that is not just to run away, but to just, like, start destroying things indiscriminately. Flies out in her big mobile suit and just, like, shoots every weapon in every direction. Just like, I'm gonna explode. It's kind of like what Camille does with his voice every time he kills someone just like screams out into the void only she's shooting lasers into the void and I'm reminded of that Mass Effect uh, clip of just like how things travel endlessly through space until they hit something and I'm like and it's going to ruin someone's day eventually (laughs) yep well it's only fair because Camille's day was already ruined and therefore <laughs> he is perfectly justified ruining someone else's day. That's oh, how it works. I think she was talking about Rosamia. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yes, like- Rosamia probably ruined a lot of days. <laughs> Outside of that moment alone. So, um, like, when he's getting flashes of four, is, like, that an invading personality? Or, like, is that him putting that onto someone? I'm going to ask you all because I don't know the supernatural space. <laughs> we debated exactly that question. We debated mm. whether or not um, Camille was just like seeing four in Rosamium, whether Camille was seeing four's actual ghost, because that could happen, uh, or whether some like aspect of four's ghost had been imprinted onto Rosamia by the evil science people. <sighs> And at that point, the mobile suit that Rosamia is flying around in, the giant purple one, uh, is a like upgraded version of the one that Four used. Okay. Is it literally like the same one that she used, like, and they put some new stuff on it? Or like, is it like, oh, we used the blueprints and now they're better? I don't think so. I, th- 
I think it's like a second generation version. Oh. Um, but it could be using the same brain computer interface, for instance. Wait, that's how they've been doing this? I've, I've only connected that they've got like levers and buttons as a straight up like a, a brain connection. It's different for different suits. The one that Rosamia and Four use, which is called the Psycho Gundam, <sighs> definitely has like, at least in some shots, a little cable that goes out of the mobile suit and hooks into the helmet. And there's definitely a brain to computer interface going on there. Uh, for Camille's, it definitely seems more like there is some sort of like psychically receptive device in the Zeta that he's controlling with his mind, but it's not like nobody implanted anything in him that that he knows of. <laughs> nobody put it in there intentionally. It's just like you can psychically link with this Gundam. We don't know how. Woo! Basically. Cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> then never mind. Because I was like, <laughs> do we just get all these blank ladies? And then like, if we're talking about like multiple personalities inhabiting one person, I was like, dang, it's getting loud in there. And your dichotic listening is just getting so difficult now. And so Camille is so traumatized by what he's forced to do at the end, killing Rosamia, and like, not accidentally, not uh, in the heat of battle, but very deliberately, consciously killing Rosamia. He seems to suffer what, uh, I'm going to borrow a phrase you've used in the past and say, what seems like a moral injury here. <laughs> We're going back to that. Okay. Are we using the term correctly? Does moral injury apply when we're in this situation where Camille really didn't want to kill her, didn't think she should have to die, but is sort of forced by circumstances to kill her to protect all of these other people? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Especially if it's in line with like these schemas. Well, schemas also tell us what's good and bad. And for some reason, he's said that all these cyber new type ladies are all good. So I have to destroy something good. And I'm an awful person. And so powerless to do anything except kill. It's just, so he destroyed the suit and then she ejected and then she got vaporized. So he watched all of that. Plus he's like psychically attuned to her anyway. So. Yeah, that also made me think of something. Um, and what did that make you think of? <laughs> so Gates, him, Rosamia, all of them like talk in their brains, right? Yeah. Okay. And then Gates gets pulled out to fight the bug people. I'm sorry, the bug people is... So the um, what happens here with <laughs> Gates is that one faction of the Titans uh, pulls off a coup and assassinates the leader of the Titans in order to take over. And Gates is with the leader of the Titans at the time. Uh, and so when they get attacked from behind by their own people, he's caught up in that fight. And presumably he dies during that, although it's not clear. I refuse to acknowledge people are completely dead unless I see them effortfully animated as vaporized, like you all put me through. <laughs> <laughs> you should write some fanfics about Gates Kappa getting therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything else about him. No one does. Oh, cool. It's like, I wish people just knew who I was. 
Um, anyway, so I was just like, Gates, interestingly, is like managing Rosamia and fighting people in space. And I was like, that is a dichotic listening task from And to tell you what dichotic listening is, is um, you hear two messages in either ear, and then you have to repeat back what you heard. And, <laughs> yeah, it was super interesting. So it's this researcher called Broadbent, and you put two different messages in the ear. And depending on what message you put first, that actually shows your like side preference in your brain. Hmm. It's actually how we figured out where language resides mostly in most people, you know, the left side of the head, because everyone was interpreting their the first message from the right as the first part of the message before that anyway not to get into this whole mess of dyslexia and that whole body of research but yeah that's what i was thinking about it's like man <laughs> what are you prioritizing being alive or shooting the enemy i'm just that's terrible <laughs> yeah so i mean i wouldn't be surprised if he's dead but that's fine <laughs> that's all i thought about i don't know very much about him other than like oh you're the big brother of the moment that's interesting okay bye <laughs> He's not terribly important in the great scheme of things. He basically does just show up to be Rosamia's surrogate big brother for a little while. But with Gates dead, Rosamia dead, and Camille morally injured, we move into the last two episodes of the show, or as I like to call it, everyone dies. Yes, I think I wrote, what did I say to you? Hang on, I'm going to pull it up so I can say exactly what I had to say. I don't have anything psychologically meaningful to say about these episodes of endless slaughter that I was assigned. So, dear listeners, think about my position. When I've asked Dr. Shar to come on and talk about the psychological implications of these episodes, and I get that message about five minutes before recording. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it's turned out that you actually do have some things to say about it. I had some things to say about Mega Bazooka Laser, and now he's a vampire. <laughs> so Camille, who has now decided that there's nothing he can do to uh, help his friends except kill, uh, is now thrust into the final climactic battle where he is tasked with killing a lot of people, and he does so. Yeah, when we are, I don't know, I had forgotten that Katz is here, and he showed up, I'm like, oh, you did. Yeah, Katz, who has just like steadfastly refused throughout the whole show to ever listen to advice or like moderate his behavior in any way. So he's like our true personification of like childhood idealism and recklessness. Yes. Yes. Because Camille can't be that anymore. He's too broken. Yes. Suddenly become a pessimist. Anyway, sorry. And, no, that that was great. <laughs> There's a fair chunk of the show that involves Camille in the way that adults often try to protect children, trying to explain to him why he should act differently or do things differently. And Katz, in classic child fashion, is like, nope, I gotta learn stuff for myself, even if it's horribly painful. <laughs> I'll learn on my own, even if it kills me. <laughs> then I learned real good. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's move on then to the sort of the the one really psychologically relevant part of this final episode, which is where Camille faces off against Sirocco in the final battle. Uh, he summons his ghost army. He kills Sirocco. Sirocco does something to him or he himself does something to him or some, you know, some combination of everything that's happening. 
uh, kind of like breaks Camille's mind and causes him, it seems, to regress into a childlike state. That's why I was like wondering about your supernatural space stuff because he says he's going to do it. He's like, I'm going to take your soul with me. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of left up to the viewer's interpretation. I mean, nothing like this has happened before. Oh, like this is probably the most therapeutic thing that could possibly happen to Camille. Because I think we've been leading up to it for a while. All that like screaming into the void every time he's had to kill someone he cares about. But not screaming into the void when killing people at random. Um, that mm -hmm. was funny. All this talk about like life in space is important. We shouldn't kill it. And I'm going to kill everyone. And I was like, there's, there's clearly either he's trying to convince himself or that's generally how he feels, which is also bad and confusing. We have all this buildup to like... I feel like he was going to break no matter what. At some mm -hmm. point, he's kind of got like a subconscious desire to die. I'm guessing because he like threw up his visor in space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that was the, the foreshadowing we get about that. Because I was trying to understand some sort of symbolism with this helmet. I'm sure you all debated this, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we came down where you did that opening up the helmet was like a subconscious desire to to die so if you look at where the um the button to lift a helmet was on the left side right mm -hmm. so if we kind of keep thinking about these actual split these split of the left and right brain this is like explored in a lot of tv shows and a lot of things um, at the same time that EMDR is being developed, there's a lot of split brain studies where like your your brains, when they talk to each other, they're connected by something called the corpus callosum, right? And if you sever that, that's, that's been a treatment for epilepsy and seizures a lot. Mm -hmm. And we find that these people, because um, your vision is split contralaterally, left and right view, so your right brain processes the left field of vision your right brain controls all the left side and the center of language is not based in the right side of the brain. Um, it's based in the left. So if you are shown something in your left field of vision, you're not able to articulate it, but you can pick it up with your left hand. But if you're shown a word in um, your right field of vision, then you can say that, but you can't pick it up with your hand. So when we have a lot of these unconscious desires to do something like kill ourselves it's going to be enacted by the by the non-dominant hand so he's got like a phantom limb going on that's like we we're done like if your brain is split up like people when they look at the activity they're not talking to each other they're actually fighting this guy was trying to like drink something but like some part of him had known it was poison so like the left hand like him knocking it out of his hand so he's like don't do that it's bad but he can't like vocalize that mm -hmm. so i'm picturing camille's like right brain going hey, we're done <laughs> we're done i don't wanna we're done <laughs> you did it we we've gone we've gone enough i'm done well and when it happens it's almost as though he doesn't realize it's happening right Right. And so the impact I'm trying to remember is the left is the left side of the face, right? Impact? The break of his visor. Oh, in the final combat when his faceplate like explodes outward. Mm-hmm. I think it is the left side. It is the left side, so it's free. It wins. 
he's he's free. The left yeah. side, I mean, the right, the right brain that wanted to die, got its will. It's like we done, we did it. Let's start over. Well, and yet this final ending for him means he does escape without dying. Mm-hmm. Yep. Brand new. Looking at comets, child. Space gets to be like cool and fun again instead of horrifying where everyone dies. <laughs> Full of the minds of the dead. I don't know. I was like, did that did he take I was like, he either took everyone that was residing in his brain with him into the void and then he wiped him clean. Or now he's an empty vessel for random space spirits. For random ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna occupy this. I'm like, okay, hey, it just cool. means he'll never be lonely again. <laughs> oh Lord. Yeah, space is just chock-a-block full of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he put them there. But he'll never think about that again, luckily. So what do you think comes next for him? Oh, uh, Lord. Um, <laughs> I mean, far clearly, you know, is distraught. I'm trying to remember the last shots of the episode is just them like docking again, right? In the Argama. Yeah. Well, cause she has to retrieve him. He doesn't remember how to pilot. <laughs> and oh, so she has, to, she has to go rescue him and tow him in. It's interesting. Cause I was like, I wonder how much it's gone. Cause the things that we lose with amnesia aren't like, they're usually like personal memories and some procedural like skill, um, but there's clearly a base of skill that we still have. Like, you know, someone can still use a pencil or someone can still play the piano. Mm -hmm. I'm actually surprised that he doesn't remember how to pilot, but I don't know. He's probably one of the people that I would see and I'd recommend that he goes into assisted living. Someone like, hey, supervise him while he does all these complex tasks, please. Uh, but I don't know what space assisted living looks like though. Lots of robots probably. <laughs> so. In the next series, Camille does reappear. It's a few days later. <laughs> That's it? Yeah, it, it starts quite quickly um, after the end of Zeta. But in Double Zeta, Camille has gone into a, a catatonic state. He's not in a coma exactly, it seems like. And at one point he does kind of wake up. His eyes are open, he's awake, but he doesn't appear to be looking at anything in particular. Uh, and he is not feeding himself or, or moving. He has to be moved around. Is he talking? No. no. He might have locked-in syndrome. Locked-in syndrome is a rare neurological disorder characterized by complete paralysis of voluntary muscles, except for those that control the eyes. People with locked-in syndrome are conscious and can think and reason, but are unable to move. Vertical eye movements and blinking are used to communicate. Horrifying. Yeah. yeah. He does have one uh, moment of activity when he encounters the protagonist of the next show, he sort of gets up a little bit. He he reaches out, touches the new guy's hand, and they have a brief like psychic space moment. And then Camille <laughs> relapses. What do they say in psychic space? They don't actually say anything. There's just like a vision of space that passes between them. <laughs> it's kind of like Camille saying, ha ha, it's your job now, buddy. I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> Who's our new dude? What's their name? His name is Judo. He's a 14-year-old scavenger who uh, is raising his little sister by himself. Because his parents live and work in other colonies and send back like remittance payments. 
I mean, is there a running pool on how long this little sister's gonna live? I think she'll survive the show. <laughs> it's much uh, it's much lighter in tone than the other series. So oh. Yeah. I think you'll like it. Judo's <laughs> uh Judo's much more like happy go lucky. Uh the the rage simmers within, but uh he's uh he's more energetic and and friendly than Camille was. My bar is so low on people being happy. Um, <laughs> all right. We'll, we'll have to we'll have to get you back on the show to talk about Judo and oh, his goody. and his friends. Because unlike prior Gundam protagonists, Judo has friends. <laughs> this bodes better already. Next time on episode 3.7, A Bunch of Dummies, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 9 and... Kids in space! You know how they punish treason. First time. Come on guys, we rehearsed this. Bright seems like he's under a lot of stress. Mashima is correct? The sheer mass of that lad! A sucker for a pretty face. Ooh, snaky arms! A mole. And let Judo narrate all of Gundam! You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Fra Bo and the Orphans hasn't been the same since Cats sold out. The Bicha and Mondo experience are the real voice for the new type generation. Out your window at passersby. We might not hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from F.S. Scott. Thanks, Scott. And thank you for listening. What? How dare I? How dare they? Ooh, angry peas and carrots. Are very mad right now. The angriest watermelon slices I've ever seen. Ludicrous. Our tales are profound and soul haunting stories for people of all ages. All right. Just so you know, there is so much construction going on outside, and they don't seem to take a break. So let me know if you want anything re recorded, or if that construction sound outside was 
you know, terrible, like that big crash bang in the background just now. SOC side one commission, more like SO, you know, commission. I assume my person isn't good at following through on ideas. Well, why didn't you say that before we started recording? I don't know. Oh my God, amateurs. I went to Arda. Oh yeah, the Anaheim Academy of Dramatic Arts. Or maybe it's just called Arda. You're the one who went there. You shouldn't, you know? This is the worst thing possible. I know it's, it's a, a stage direction. I'm aware. Okay. I'm just getting, using it to get me into, into the mood. I can't do it normal anymore. I think <laughs> yeah. you should do a take with that voice. <laughs> and I'll need to go back <laughs> scrap metal. But I want to be an artist. <laughs> right, there was a stage direction, but like, the audience doesn't know that there was a stage direction. <laughs> They're supposed to read that. Never mind. <laughs> yes, the audience is supposed to read the script. Shut They've up. never seen the point. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna use this. I'm gonna use this. And so once the anesthetic had worn off, I told that damn doctor, no, it was my left hip you were supposed to replace, not my right. But of course the joke was on me. I was supposed to be getting knee surgery, so that was another can of worms entirely. And on top of that, the grab shuttle to the medical station had a very strong odor. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, uh, we need to keep that line as it is. No, it's, it's crucial to the thematic... Yes, it's crucial to the thematic arc. No, that's important. God, these meetings are killing me. That's nothing. Have you heard the rumors about an AU chip docked here? I bet it's... I'll tell you later. Yeah, and like my brother just like jumps in her mobile suit, like pushes her out of her own mobile suit. Like, like read the room, dude. So rude. Who screams? Wilhelm. In every movie ever, anytime you hear a scream, there's... It's just the one scream. Really? It's called the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> okay. Uh, Who's Mr. Wilhelm? Who knows? Okay. I could just call it that because I think it was the character who did it in the first movie that Aww. it was recorded. And they just re- it's an in joke for royalties? Foley artists. Okay. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. It's just very dry humor. Yeah, and then the guy was like... You gotta wear a mask. I was like, what do you think this is, Xeon? 